Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Portland's protests against racial injustice seemed to be dwindling. Then the federal government came to town, ratcheting up tension. Now state and federal leaders said they've reached an agreement in which state troopers will protect the courthouse and federal forces will step away, some leaving as soon as Thursday. I'm Andrew Thien, and this is Beat Check with the Oregonian. It's still unclear what the planned drawdown will mean for the nightly demonstrations, but the federal presence was unmistakably significant. Up next, three of my colleagues who are some of our most experienced in covering protests across the city during the past few years talk about the sudden shift and escalation brought by that federal presence. Edder Camposano, Beth Nakamura, and Dave Killen discussed how they prepare for the protests, what they focus on when reporting, how they stay safe, and why they work to put black people at the center of their coverage. Here's that conversation. Beth, Dave, and Edder, thanks so much for taking time to talk to me today. Happy to be here. Anytime. You three have been covering protests uh, throughout this 60 plus days that uh, since George Floyd's killing. But I'm wondering, you know, Dave, start with you. How, how has the tenor of these events and these protests changed since federal officers arrived um, and national media started descending on Portland? Um, well, it sort of refocused the protests, I think, on, you know, in a literal sense, on a different building, because for the first month and a half or so, maybe not quite that long, everything was pretty focused on the Justice Center. And now everything's all all the sort of bigger stuff seems to be focused on the federal courthouse. Overall, you know, there was a kind of pretty noticeable arc to the first, you know, the pre-federal protests were really big. There were the big City Justice marches, you know, you'd be down there and there'd be thousands of people. And it had started to fade, you know, by early July, I would say. And, you know, there were nights that uh, we'd go down there and there'd be a few dozen people just kind of hanging out in the street in front of the Justice Center. And then post-federal appearance, everything just rocketed back up. Right. And, you know, it sort of just seems, you know, being on the ground as much as we have with the feds coming into town, it it really reignited, you know, it reignited it, actually. I mean, it it threw gas on what was a small crowd. Objectively speaking, you know, when you're there all the time and you you see it go from a, a small sort of group of agitators or, you know, lingerers to what most recently was a crowd that mirrored in size some of the beginning marches at, on the heels of the killing of George Floyd. Edder, I'm curious, um, you had a recent story that was very well done that pointed out, you know, this is a small part of town. A lot of folks might not be as familiar with, um, you know, the area of Third Avenue and um, these parks and the federal courthouse and, and the 
um, justice center, but can you describe, you know, what you see and feel down there? I mean, what's it look like? So whenever you go down to one of these demonstrations, there's a pretty dependable rhythm that you can kind of count on from, you know, the rallies in front of the justice center that that draw uh, hundreds, if not maybe uh, a thousand or more folks that are, you know, largely peaceful and carry a lot of the iconography that you have seen, like the wall of moms, the dads, uh, that kind of thing. And then you've got the folks at the federal courthouse who are, you know, protesting specifically against the presence of federal agents here. The story that I wrote really detailed the geography of that area and where things happen relative to the 145 square miles that this city covers. Um, At most, it's about a 12 block portion of downtown, which, you know, on Twitter, Andrew, I think you pointed out that really nobody hangs out down there regularly. It's kind of an area that you walk through if you forgot your lunch and you happen to work downtown, right? So there's really no reason for very many people to congregate in these spaces other than to protest these days or to go to work or to sit in the park. Um, and so, you know, I, I I felt like I got a lot of pushback for pushing basically a basic ge- geography lesson that, that detailed where in the city these demonstrations happen. And I've got to tell you, yesterday it was incredibly striking to me that a lot of what was happening right in front of the federal courthouse was not drowned out totally, but really muted by the loud music that was pumping through Lounsdale Square. And that's the city park across the street from the federal courthouse where there, I mean, it basically felt like the the country fair out in Eugene where there were watery, like, you know, water and sanitation stations. There were folks like grilling. There were people camping out in tents and you could hardly hear the chants of the protesters you know, because it was being muted by the by the music in that square. So, you know, you walk a few couple of blocks even north and all of a sudden you're at a 7-Eleven, you're at Pioneer Place Mall, and you can hardly notice what's going on just a few blocks away just because of how concentrated it is to that that six to twelve block area that again, you don't you don't really visit unless you have a pressing need to. What do you all do to prepare when you go down there? I mean, I think uh, it might surprise uh, listeners or readers uh, the level of preparation that goes into it. But, you know, Beth and Dave, you you two have been down there probably the most of anyone in the newsroom. How do you prepare? What do you need when you go down there? And how has that changed with the recent escalation? Well, I really like to travel as light as possible. Um, I always want to be and as Beth can attest, this extends beyond protest coverage. I always want to be as small as possible and <laughs> just take up as little space as possible. So I, uh, I generally just bring my two cameras um, and I bring a couple spare batteries. I bring a battery that I keep in my back pocket plugged into my phone because my phone is a million years old and the battery does not last even like half an hour because <laughs> we use our phones to transmit photos wirelessly. Uh, so it'll really, you basically have to have a backup battery. Recently, uh, I, thanks to Beth, I've started using a lens belt uh, that holds one more lens, and uh, which I for me is usually a 50 millimeter 1.2. And I can also keep, you know, like a cliff bar or an extra handkerchief or something in there. 
um, I started keeping a, a wet handkerchief in a Ziploc bag in there that I can use to wipe my eyes um, or just put around my neck to help cool down. I very recently finally started wearing a gas mask. Um, and so the belt helps with that because I can keep the mask on the belt until I need it. <laughs> my hair is absolutely insane right now because of the pandemic. So I have to have a way of keeping it under control. So I have a handkerchief that I wrap around my head. I guess the other thing I do is ever since the very first night, I've worn the same shirt every night. It's a white short sleeve uh, snap button shirt that has snap button breast pockets. And I use those to keep uh, two spare batteries and some business cards. And I also like the idea of just looking the same every night. I think that's actually really helped people know who I am um, and know that I've been out there a lot. Uh, and it's white. The shirt is white, so it's noticeable. So the reporter I'm with can can spot me easier. So that's. Oh, and I guess you know the number one thing about covering protests is wearing comfortable shoes. That's just automatic for me. But someone, I think it might have been Joe Freeman, asked me a month or two ago, like for some advice, and I forgot to tell him that. <laughs> I felt really bad because his feet were killing him. Yeah, shoes. It's are... critically important. It's really hard to overstate. Um, the other the lens belt comes in handy for the gas mask and also I would say the helmet, which both of which are essential gear right now. I mean, people have had brain injuries, skull fractures. This is a conflict zone. I'm going to be frank about it. Um, and I think because we live here and we cover it all the time, it's kind of like, you know, when you throw a lobster in a pot of cold water and, you know, you don't realize that it's starting to get up to a boil until, you know what I mean? Like you, you, you just immerse in it so much that, that sometimes the change is, is, is slow uh, or over time it's sort of creeping. But I, I, I do feel we're, we're clearly in that place. Um, you know, I talked to the New York Times guy last night mason really nice guy and a bunch of kind of core photographers who are there and they're getting combat pay i probably <laughs> should announce that on <laughs> in public but but they are and um you know the committee to protect journalists is doing a live chat with me tomorrow on this very issue and while we take great care with our situational awareness and our you know practices that that dave talks about and just being familiar on the ground, wearing the same kind of branding, you know, having press or Oregonian or all of those things and being there enough that people recognize you, they know you, they know your work. Um, that That's all really, really helpful. It's also really helpful for your safety um, because you have a, you're much more tuned into the rhythm of the evening, although it can be highly unpredictable. There is, you know, generally an arc to it. Um, and when you're there a lot, you you get your spidey sense sense is is you know finely tuned, um, and when when things are going to pivot, also walking up to the election, you know it, it's a bit of a powder keg, frankly, and so all of these practices are just essential. And and I would add, just really a good night's sleep. I mean, a lot of like out of town family or friends or people who haven't been on the ground are so worried about our safety. And I appreciate that. And, and it's legitimate, but if they only knew it was really more just about like, Oh, what I wouldn't do for just, you know, one continuous sleep, you know, that is hard because it's just very disruptive to your sleep patterns and sleep is really essential for 
you know, to be high functioning, which is really what we need to be. So the day of gets really eaten up by a lot of little tasks and meetings and all of which are very important. But I, what I always try to do if I can is, is get a good hour's sleep somewhere in there and just put everything uh, on airplane mode and just sort of make it all go away. Edder, how, how do you go about just generally covering a protest? How do you decide, you know, who to talk to or what to tweet and kind of give folks a little bit of a, of a glimpse of the process behind what, deciding what the story of the night is? I have sort of adopted a routine before I even get down there. I start a Twitter thread that begins with something saying, hey, I'm going to be down there for the Oregonian today. Just so you know, I'm the guy on the ground. Um, here are basically the rules that I follow. And, you know, the second tweet is typically a shout out to all the independent journalists who have been down there since day one, basically, because uh, a lot of them don't reliably collect a paycheck from the footage that they record and that, you know, both we and a lot of national media use to kind of see what's going on on the ground when we can't have eyes everywhere. So I, I usually do that as a, you know, first order of the of the day kind of thing. But then I also tweet all of my, or as many as I can, all of my colleagues' stories from that day, just to give people who are following me an idea of, you know, what they might be able to expect or what has happened that day, because it does, it's a lot to take in and it's a lot to keep up with. From there, I do very sporadic updates on what is happening. Most of what I provide in terms of updates, I feed directly to our editor, Molly Young, who's been doing an amazing job of really just gathering all our reporting and putting it into a nightly live updates post. And the reason that I do that, instead of, say, recording scenes and posting them on Twitter and saying, hey, this is what's happening right now, is because I've had a lot of you know interactions with bad faith actors in the past who either straight up steal my footage or retweet me out of context and try and spread it to, you know, like, pursue their own agenda. And so I would rather have whatever I'm observing and whatever I'm recording hide behind the copyright on our website, where people can't as easily just take my words or take my video out of context and start spreading it. And so that's really what I try to do when I'm down there is try to give an accurate accounting of what's happening, engaging reactions, talking to people, primarily people of color, because that's really who this is all about, right? And specifically Black people and Black Portlanders to get their perspective on federal response to these protests, on what they would like to see come of these nightly demonstrations. And so that's kind of the approach that I take down there to make sure that not only am I collecting information responsibly um, and really focusing at least my coverage on who who is this ultimately going to impact and whose voices is this movement movement intended to amplify because those are really the people we should be talking to um and i think our newsroom writ large has done a really good job of making sure that we touch base with those folks before uh you know like the dispersal orders come down so we can get that really human side of these demonstrations Let's take a break. We're losing Edder to break news, but we'll come back and talk a little bit more with Dave and Beth. Beth and Dave, you two have been covering protests, uh, which is, I guess, part of the fabric of the city for, for years now. But I guess if you can put us in historical perspective, what has the last two months been like? I mean, does it compare at all to previous demonstrations and protests you've covered here in Portland? 
Not for me, no. I mean, I've been working in journalism my entire life, decades now. And um, I've, you know, traveled all over the world and covered all kinds of things. I mean, I've never seen anything quite like this. You know, I I didn't uh, live through the civil rights movement, not to compare it to that, but, you know, these big sort of seismic moments, uh, you know, where the almost like the little tectonic plate shift, you know, is happening. Uh, uh, so, you know, for me, it's a remarkable moment in our city and our nation's history. You know, I'm concerned about where we're headed with it all. But, um, but no, I've never, you know, I've covered Occupy, I've covered, you know, stuff like that in, Port- in Portland and elsewhere, but nothing quite like this. Yeah, I feel the same way. It's, you know, there's some similarities. I mean, uh, there's some stuff that's kind of uh, typical of a pro to have a big protest. Um, but this is, yeah, it's really different in terms of this uh, sustained time period um, and the level of law enforcement response, I would say are two big <laughs> differences. Um, yeah. It's again, there are some similarities, but, it's not like mm-hmm. the protests, the many, many protests that I've covered before. Now, you two have both been injured during this two months. Um, and of course, you're not the only two journalists and you're not um, the only people. Um, we've written pretty extensively on, um, you know, the federal uh, response and um uh, the injuries to Donovan LaBella, who was shot in the head um, with the non-lethal or less than lethal round. But um, can you describe a little bit of like the injuries or injury that you've uh, experienced down there? Well, let's start with the most recent one, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> um, the range of, I mean, I almost hesitate to use the word injury for some of it, but you know, there's everything from twisting an ankle, little things like that to the pepper balls. Um, you you end up getting hit with a lot of the pepper balls. Uh, they hurt, they sting. And of course they release a little pepper spray and, you know, they leave welts and stuff, but I mean, they are, you can ignore those for the most part in terms of like how they affect you in the moment. And that had been other than of course the copious amounts of tear gas, that had been, um, which yeah, isn't, shouldn't be discounted. I mean, that's, uh, I guess I'm lucky right. enough to have, a, you know, not no preexisting respiratory conditions. I can usually tolerate the tear gas pretty well, even without a gas mask. Um, but the, uh, other night, I guess it was Saturday night. Um, I got shot with a rubber bullet, which was really an order of magnitude beyond, anything I'd experienced before. Uh, it, uh, what, you know, where did it hit you? Nothing like a pepper ball. Well, luckily for me, it hit me in the side where I have some extra padding now, thanks to the pandemic. Um, <laughs> and, uh, it, uh, it just dropped me, you know, I mean, I, I went back and looked at my raw take of photos and my initial thought was that I had actually not been shooting at the time. Um, I was crossing Maine at fourth as the federal police were pushing people west um, after a bunch of, you know, sort of a huge show force at the courthouse with gas and 
all kinds of stuff. And I was having a really hard time seeing because it, I had the wrong, um, we had just sort of gotten these new gas masks and I had the wrong filters. They were uh, organic vapor filters, not particulate filters, which is what you need for the tear gas. And um, So I was kind of just trying to get in position to shoot at, you know, take pictures of the, this line of federal officers. Um, anyway, and looking at my raw take, I, I think I was actually shooting. I was kind of shooting blind because I just couldn't see very well that I was pointing the camera with the long lens um, east towards the line of officers. And as I got almost to the corner, which would have been the southwest corner of 4th and Main, I believe I heard both sounds of, of the uh, rubber bullet gun going off and then the rubber bullet hitting me. Um, but really, it just it just dropped me. I mean, I went down instantly. And I feel like pretty instantly knew what had happened and wasn't like super concerned. I didn't think that I'd been shot with a real bullet or anything. Um, and a bunch of protesters around me started screaming medic medic. And I was like, no, no, I can't get involved with you guys. Uh, and I also wanted to, you know, keep shooting. So I, I got back up and, um, sort of removed myself a little bit. I, I kept going, um, South for, you know, 20 feet or so. And then, uh, we, we communicate through either Slack or text threads um, in the field with the office. And so I texted that thread and said, you know, I, I just got hit with a rubber bullet. I'm going to need a few minutes. And then I turned around and shot some more photos uh, and then got a call from our boss who was basically like, get out of there. <laughs> so I'm really lucky that it hit me where it did. I'm not joking about that. Like if someone were to come up to me and say, I'm going to shoot you right now and there's nothing you can do about it, uh, but I'll let you pick where I'm going to shoot you. I would have picked literally this exact spot. <laughs> so uh, it was, you know, very lucky in that regard. Yeah. Let's not minimize this though, because there are like, I, you know, I took a little uh, casual poll last night while we were on the ground there among this group of uh, national photographers on the ground uh, and some local ones, and and every last one of them has uh, bruises and injuries. So you know the injuries are are pervasive and they're everywhere. They're not really about us, but in fact we are you know among the all everyone you know all the injuries you're hearing about. So I got uh, kind of slammed by a baton early on. Now now seems like you know child's play in a way. From but a that was Portland police officer. That was Portland police. That was. Gosh, that was a—I don't even know, Dave. When was that? At least a month ago. Yeah, it was a long time ago. So, and then since maybe a couple of weeks ago, I got hit. It was definitely a canister of some kind, and it was direct. And so, I still have a bruise and a big kind of, you know, blue blood-ish color welt on my knee, and another big bruise on my. Um, the small of my back. I'm not sure what that was. Um, pepper balls and those kind of things, as Dave said, those are pretty routine and they burn and they kind of leave a little white powder. And, you know, so those are no fun, but they're really, you know, it's, they're not bad relative to what, what can happen and what has happened to, you know, almost everyone out there that I know who's covering this. Yeah. The pepper balls, I mean, not to make, to minimize them, but they're the one you want. You know, if you got to get hit by something anywhere but the eye, right? Those are those are tolerable. Like you can keep working, right? Which is why the helmets and the mask and any eye protection, all that is like essential at this point because it can cost you, you know, uh, your your li- you know, your livelihood certainly and your quality of life. 
most definitely. You know, I, I asked Edder how he approached, um, you know, who to talk to, kind of how to report from the scene. But how do you two negotiate covering protests as journalists? But there's also concern from some of the participants that, you know, their images um, could be used from police or federal authorities um, to try to be tracked down. How do you kind of, how do you think about that when you're out there? Well, there's concerns about that from all sides uh, uh, and of this protest and, uh, people not wanting, you know, in an, in this era, you know, that we're living in with the complete lack of privacy, and including a lot of concerns, frankly, with, with our uh, hotspots and accessing devices from on high uh, around there. Uh, but just in terms of what we do, we can take a lot of, uh, dare I say, policing from um, some protesters about, you know, showing their faces. That that kind of rises and falls depending on what else is happening in this, you know, constantly changing situation. Uh, so um, I'm careful when I photograph and how I photograph. I, I kind of pick my moments and um, I don't waste time kind of overshooting, which I think people sort of do out of insecurity anyway. You know, you're just sort of racking up images, hoping something will work. It's just really not the best mindset. So, and in a situation like this, where the tensions are, you know, can be so high, all the more reason not to have a practice like that. Um, So there's that, you know, I mean, people in journalism love the First Amendment and, you know, our right, our protected right uh, to do this job. Um, but but on the ground, uh, in a situation like that is not the time to be, you know, pulling it out of your arsenal as a defense for what you're doing. Like, it's just a very, you know, can be a real tense situation. And so I just kind of try to just stay low key, you know, like, and and pick my moments. Dave, maybe if you could go from there, I know that there's a recent court ruling out of uh, the Seattle area that you found particularly troubling that kind of touches on this question a little bit. Oh, yeah, that's about, you know, they were the some media organizations in Seattle were ordered to turn over their unpublished photos and footage, which is really scary for a lot of reasons. Um, I mean, that removes the separation between uh, I mean, if it were to happen, it would remove the separation between us and uh, something we're covering, which is law enforcement. Um, and we just can't, we cannot, I mean, it's a really slippery slope. That's basically, you know, I, I tweeted about that and I had a bunch of people coming in and saying that, you know, the same thing you always get, which is like, oh, well, you're, you, why would you protect criminals? You know, you, you know, you, you're clearly trying to help them. And the thing is, if, you know, if you just follow that line of, reasoning just a little bit further it's like basically the next step is state-run media like if if we have to because we you know to anyone who's listening to this who doesn't know we do not share unpublished images we would go to court for that i had i've had police email me and and made i guess just thinking i'm an idiot and just being like hey can i see your raw take from last night it's like (laughs) right come on i mean that's insulting you would think i would uh they wouldn't know how this works like that's what the shield law one of the things that the shield laws do. So that ruling is uh, of a concern. I, I'm sure it'll be appealed and I would imagine it won't stand, but I don't know enough about the law. And I, I do know that Oregon has the strongest shield law in the country. So hopefully it'll never be an issue for us. But yeah, that would really change things again, not because you're trying to protect someone, but 
we shoot thousands of photos every night. It's not like we're going through them and be like, oh, I can't use this one because someone's doing something illegal. Although there are people who would want us to do that. But um, it's just a really important separation between us and law enforcement that uh, would be a major, major problem right. if if that were the the case. And I, again, I think if you just follow that logic, it's that's you end up in a in a place where there is no freedom of the press because it's essentially state-run media. And I would um, I would add that the, the, that it's a separation not just between us and law enforcement, but frankly between us and everyone. It's a, it's independence. It's a free and independent yeah, yeah. press. You know that's that's what it is. When there was a lawsuit by the ACLU to you know fight against the treatment of journalists, you know back in the good old days of this movement, the Oregonian didn't join on that, and it was for that reason. Just you know, plain and simple, straight up independence. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what right. it comes down to is that we can't be a part of it and we're a part of it. We're, there are people out there who are now even more going to, to see a camera and want to make sure that you can't use it. But that's less of a, much less of a concern to me than the actual issue, which is that we would no longer be independent and we couldn't do our jobs and that'd be, dangerous for everybody um what's something about the protests um and kind of what's going on right now that um because i know we could when you say protests you could it's very different um when you're talking you know end of may versus now um what's something that you'd want to tell portlanders who haven't been down there uh you know everybody's I think an editor did a good job of outlining how really this is a, it's a very specific area, a very small specific area in a place where nobody really lives. I mean, you got the people who live in the Essex house building nearby, which I know are sick of all the noise. And then, you know, the inmates in the justice center who are getting all the tear gas wafting into their cells. But for the most part, it's not a place where your average Portlander is going to be affected directly. And if you wanted to ignore this and you lived in Portland, it would be pretty easy to do so. I guess not so much something I'd say to other Portlanders, but, uh, you know, the national media and sort of the national perspective of like, oh, my God, everybody there must be, you know, terrified to leave their house. And it's, that is not remotely true. And I would, I would add to that um, that, you know, we are, as a country, fairly divided and um and and we're we're lorded over by uh, algorithms in our consumption of news and information usually through social platforms because of that people tend to have a really distorted view and and lacking context for what's happening you know on the ground in this really tiny little section of uh portland so i would just encourage people listening to consider that and, and to follow credible news sources and read a variety of stories on these topics so you get a more dimensional look at what's happening rather than reflexively responding to an isolated clip or a meme that completely mischaracterizes and distorts something that is so infinitely more complicated. If you followed good journalism regularly and, you know, navigate and understand what this is all about and conduct your conversations accordingly. Yeah. I agree. To me, Dave, one of the moments from the last two months, the images that 
leaps out to me and that I'll think back on is one you took uh, a while ago um, of a black man standing atop the elk statue, which is now no longer there. Um, I'm wondering whether that image is one that will stick with you and when to put this to both of you, if there's a, an image or two that um, when you think back on what's happening right now, that sticks with you. Um, that's yeah, that's the one I would say is my, my best shot of the last two months. It, you know, it's kind of a lucky shot. Uh, but yeah, I think that, that if, if someone were to only see one of my pictures from the last two months, that's the one I would want them to see. Uh, it was the first night of the big protest. And, you know, there was a protest on May 28th, but May 29th was a really big one. And I had started off, there was a vigil at Peninsula Park, which turned into a march. So I had marched from Peninsula Park to downtown. It was dark. And I was in Chapman Square. I must have been in Chapman Square. And I just noticed that this guy had climbed up on top of the elk. He had just done it. And there was another guy kind of trying to join him. Um the guy who was on top was a young black man and the guy who was trying to climb up was a white guy. I believe I shot it with a 200 millimeter lens. I was a little bit away from it, but you know, I try to stay away from vertical frames, but it was a clear vertical frame. And um, there's a streetlight uh, on the Southern end uh, or the Southern side of Lansdale square. And I, I guess realized that I could, just by where I positioned myself, really just by moving my body. I don't think I had time to actually like walk or anything. I think it was just like a, you know, aiming the camera in a certain way, but there was a light that I could basically put right behind his head. Uh, so he had a nice like ring light around him and I didn't have time to adjust exposure or anything like that. So I just shot, you know, whatever I, settings I was at already. And I shot a few frames and then the battery kicked on that camera and I wasn't sure if I'd, got it or not on the bigger, the more eventful nights, I, I try to sort of live tweet a little bit, but that was right before uh, things really started to get intense at the justice center with people breaking the windows and stuff. So I didn't have a whole lot of time to do anything. And I just quickly popped that photo up with an update tweet with four other photos um, and kind of forgot about it as the night went on, but it got a little of it little attention online and I went back and looked at it later and thought that that's a good one. That's uh that's the one I feel best about. What is it about that image that you think spoke to that moment? Uh, it's kind of a, the way, the one that I published, the, the man on top is kind of like offering his hand to the guy who's trying to get up on to it. And it's a dramatic pose he looks very strong and confident and I don't want to try to get too far into the weeds. I don't really think about symbolism and stuff a lot, but it does kind of have that quality and that it's sort of, you know, the white guy in the frame is secondary and is, is, is not prominent at all. And the black man is in total control of the situation you know, I've had some other photos get attention and it, this one to me feels better as a singular takeaway. If someone were to only really look at one, I'd feel better about that than some of the others. Beth, same question to you. Is there any image that sticks with you that you snapped? Oh, I don't, I don't have one that stands out during this time. 
I do see it is clearly sort of a body of work. Um, and, you know, a lot of times you'll get that singular image, you know, like Dave has actually more than once. Um, that hasn't been the case with me through this, but it has been really powerful work we've done in a situation that is extraordinarily visual and in which the visual reporting is essential. So I feel, you know, really good about what we're doing and about the support we're getting both from readers and the community and also just everyone at the Oregonian. Um, but uh, but no, I, I don't have that iconic image yet. But hey, never know. <laughs> well, thank you both for all of your incredible images and your hard work um, and for making sense to the extent possible. We can make sense of this time right now. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Beat Check with the Oregonian. This episode was produced by Ryan Wen. If you like the show, give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others find the program. Better yet, you can support the show directly by subscribing to Oregon Live. Visit OregonLive.com slash pod support. Until next time.